it's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Bruce Forsyth episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back, everyone. Did you miss me? I'm happy to be back with you. Thank you, everyone, for holding down the fort without me. I am David Levy. Here with me today are... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. And Michal Richardson. We are here to talk about Season 1, Episode 13 of The Muppet Show, starring Bruce Forsyth. This was taped July 27th and 28th and August 5th. I don't know why there was a break in there. Of 1976, and it aired in New York December 6th, 1976. Uh, it was the 12th episode to air right before Harvey Corman. And later that night, uh, also on CBS, you could watch the Johnny Cash Christmas special if you were so inclined. This week's episode was a particularly um, rich one for Muppet Morsels DVD trivia, um, including they give a rundown of the typical production schedule, but I also found it odd because they also give us the production dates, and this one had this weird gap in it. But apparently, in a normal week, um, Saturday was costume fittings and a music meeting. Sunday was a read-through of the script and a rehearsal. Monday was orchestra and vocal recordings for the musical numbers. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday were shooting days, with the guests normally only attending on Tuesdays, which explains a lot about the balance of the show that we've commented on in the past. And then Friday is post-production, video editing, and the addition of sound effects. I just find that wild that they did this so quickly. I mean, I know, I mean, that's that's the schedule for SNL still now, only more so, because it's live, and so they shoot the whole thing in 90 minutes, and that's it. And you know, like a, a three camera sitcom is probably roughly the same, you know, with rehearsal and then they shoot it in front of an audience, probably a little more time to edit it nowadays. But I just given what the Muppets are and some of the stuff we've seen, I, I was struck by how quickly they were putting this all together in 1976. And I wanted to share that with everybody. I think that probably helps to explain why especially in this first season, we're seeing a bunch of sketches that they had previously done in other contexts because they didn't have to spend as much time working out any of the like special effects or even necessarily like how to do it for camera if they had done it for TV before. And we'll talk about that later today with one of these sketches. Indeed. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you Bruce Forsyth is the prime example of a Muppet Show guest star who was a megastar in the UK and basically unknown in the United States. He was a beloved television presenter cited by the Guinness Book of World Records in 2012 for having the longest television career for a male entertainer. He was the kind of guy who had the relationship with an audience that a lot of folks grew up with him on TV. And so when they were kids, they might know him in one way. And the more they were adults, they might know him in a different way. I was really trying to think of an American equivalent. And the best I could come up with, and please forgive me for this, would be like if Bill Cosby's career hadn't ended with all of the revelations about rape, you know, the sense that he was someone who was an entertainer who worked across different genres. He did live, he did TV, he did sitcoms, he did game shows. And that because Bruce Forsyth never had rape allegations against him, like was just thought of as sort of like a lovable avuncular figure. Um, Sounds like Carol Burnett to me, honestly. Yeah, that's actually a great, uh, a great example. And especially like Carol Burnett, Bruce Forsyth uh, really broke through in the variety show era. He comes from an interesting long British family. I only want to highlight one of his ancestors, his great, 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 great grandfather, 
William Forsyth, who lived in 1737 to 1804, was a founder of the Royal Horticultural Society and the namesake of the plant Forsythia. So he started out as a child performer. He made his television debut at age 11, singing and dancing on a BBC talent show called Come and Be Televised. I love that name. <laughs> <laughs> so British. It's that easy. Right? He started live performance in age 14 with a song, dance, and accordion act called Boy Bruce, the Mighty Adam. Oh, the past. <laughs> yeah. According to Wikipedia, he worked his way through summer seasons, pantomimes, and circuses before getting his big break as a presenter on Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which was a very long-running variety show. He was the second host, and it had his largest viewership when he was running it. Uh, and he was so popular, he was the host. He left the show for a couple years, and then he ended up coming back for a few more years. And it was a mix of a few different kinds of segments, including celebrity guest stars, but also there was a built-in game show segment called Beat the Clock, which I think was borrowed from the American show of the same name, uh, which ended up laying the foundation for the sort of end phase of his career because he became a really prolific and beloved game show presenter. Before that, though, he did some stage work, including the starring role in the original Lennon production of Little Me. Uh, he was in the movie Star with Julie Andrews. He was in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, although let me tell you, uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, I'm going to rewatch Bread Knobs and Broomsticks for this episode. Friends, he's in about two minutes of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Uh, <laughs> in the Portobello Road sequence, he's like the evil pickpocket who ends up bringing them to the evil bookseller. Oh. If you remember that movie. Some up morsels say American audiences may remember him for his role in Pet Noms and Broomsticks. So thank you, Disney, for the spawn con for <laughs> yourself. Yeah, you will not remember him for that unless you are a huge Pet Noms and Broomsticks super fan. <laughs> uh, anyway, after uh, by the 70s, that's when he started his real game show career 1971 to 77 he hosted the generation game which was basically a remake of beat the clock but instead of married couples competing it was intergenerational teams usually parents and children and then he did that show again in the 90s in 1977 he returned to the variety show format with bruce's big night which did not catch on and was canceled after one season but it was interesting i watched some of the televised obituaries Oops, spoiler um <laughs> and, oh, man. and one of them mentioned like this show as being something like, even though we knew it was sort of a disaster, we kind of loved him for it anyway. And I think that sort of tells you about how they felt about him. He did a lot of game shows in the 80s. Actually, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, he did different versions of Player Cards Right, which is the UK version of Card Sharks. Uh, he did the UK version of Price is Right, which was called Bruce's Price is Right from 1995 to 2001. And at the end of his career, he was the co-host of Strictly Come Dancing, which is the UK show that spawned Dancing with the Stars. Um, and he did that from 2004 to 2013. Uh, when he died, there were all sorts of tributes, including from the head of the BBC and Prime Minister Theresa May. And the BBC produced a tribute show to him at the London Palladium, which was hosted by his strictly co-host, Tess Daly. And exactly one year after he died, his ashes were laid to rest beneath the stage in a private ceremony at the London Palladium, which I find both moving and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Horrifying. Wait, is well, like, does that happen for anybody else? I have no idea. I, what like like a box was like placed under a floorboard, right? Like they weren't like scattered in the trap room, right? Yeah, and then vacuumed up again. <laughs> like, I, I just come from a tradition where like cemeteries are cemeteries and theaters are theaters. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, they're all dusty anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know. It feels weird to me that like 
like the Palladium, is that where I saw Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Were they like doing the like, I'm going to shoot ping pong balls out of my yaya number on top of his final resting yes. place? Like, yes, they oh were. Gosh. Anyway, uh, that is Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> Why don't you get me Christy. Yes. What did you think of this episode after our um, challenging run last week? Um, I I think this episode is definitely an improvement over last week, um, but it's a real mixed bag. You know, two British sticky dudes in a row is a bit much. So in, in the broader context, I think I enjoyed it less than on its own. You know, and the shtick itself is decidedly different. You know, Peter Yusinov had that sort of like received pronunciation, rata student slumming it thing going on for him. And Bruce Forsyth is more of like a, you know, genial working class musical waka waka, like tonally, he's a better fit with the Muppets. And, you know, there are a handful of really great laughs in this episode. And there are a couple of numbers that I genuinely love, but like, as a whole, it coheres strangely, I think, but I do want to give bonus points to uh, one of Bruce Forsyth's amazing jackets. Which we look at too. Oh yes, uh, David, you were spared Peter Ustinov. How about you? Well, I did see Peter Ustinov. I just wasn't here to talk about it. Uh, if you had asked me before I watched this episode a second time, I would tell you that I remember this as being an absolutely wonderful episode. And then when I watched it a second time, I was like, "Oh no, it's just that the good parts are really good, but there's a lot of parts that I could do without." So that part sort of puts it in the middle, but uh, but the good parts were really good. Michal. Yeah, there was a lot that I loved and a lot that felt really satisfying and rewarding about this episode. And I don't know if I would have felt the same way had we not just been coming off of Peter Ustinov last week. Because as Christy said, they are two sticky British dudes, but this shtick fits so much better with the Muppets. Because the Muppets are about singing and dancing and making people happy. And that is what Bruce Forsyth seems to also be about. He's maybe even a little bit too much of a ham for the Muppets, but... After last week, I'm relieved to see it, frankly. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I enjoyed this overall. It's interesting, you know, I, I obviously I own these DVDs and, and have since 2005, and I do not remember this at all. Like, I, it's as if I had never seen it before, which obviously is not true. Um, I'm getting a little tired of season one, is, is where I sort of landed with. I generally enjoyed this, but... As much as I, I was just saying a week or two ago that I'm going to miss Mildred and George and Hilda, but the rhythms of these episodes are getting so repetitive, and we're not even binging them, right? I, we're recording these podcast episodes once a week, and so I'm watching them once a week pretty much exactly as they would have been watched at the time, um, except I'm watching them twice because we're making a podcast. Um, but I know that there are going to be four kind of repetitive backstage scenes and an at-the-dance and a Fozzie bit and a hastily-made UK spot, and I like all of those things. But I am I am really ready for something different to happen. We've now had at least three episodes where the the guest is like, "Oh, frogs and eggs and chickens, wild!" And it's just it's getting a little tedious. As much as I love the Muppet Show, that struck me this week, especially I think also having two slightly unfamiliar British guests in a row. But that said, there was a lot to enjoy. So let's get into it. Ready, three, two, one, fire! I love that you were complaining that their structure is too formulaic, <laughs> and then we immediately switch up our usual formulaic structure. Surprise! <laughs> well, it is time once again for Shout Out of a Canon. 
it is a little bit out of order this week. Uh, we decided to talk about the backstage plot first because that has uh, ties into the sketches and those tie into the songs. So we're going to get right into it. There are a few overlapping kind of mini plots that resolve in different ways. We've got kind of a little B plot where uh, Cynthia Adler in her second and final appearance on The Muppet Show is performing a duck who's working very hard on her punchline. Oh, Kermit, yeah? I finally got the punchline down for the act tonight. Want to hear it? Uh, okay. Good. Quack! <laughs> uh, fine, fine, but now keep working on it, okay? Oh, sure, Toad. Thanks a lot. You know, put me down like everybody else. Yeah, that's right. Put me down. Bitter duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the duck is like a secondary guest star. She's featured all throughout the episode. She's nagging Kermit backstage, and we're going to see in the talk spot that uh, Bruce Forsyth barters to rent her. We'll figure out later what that's about. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. She's the the patient in the veterinarian's hospital sketch, and uh, then she and her performer are never heard from again. (laughs) It's so strange. Like, she she appears as if we're supposed to know who she is, that clip is the first we hear of her, I, I think, right? And it's like we're supposed to know who she is, and she's a character. We have never seen her before. She doesn't really look like the other Muppets. She sounds nothing like the other Muppets. We've talked about Fran Brill and her boots in this scene where she's behind Kermit's desk. She definitely feels a little too short, like she can't quite make it. I, I'm fascinated by her. Yeah, I mean, she seems like she's also not as much of a veteran Muppet performer as the other performers. Like if you look at the duck and the mannerisms and like she, the eye focus like doesn't quite know where the camera is. Like she's clearly a talented voice actor, which is in fact what Cynthia Adler is, but she's not necessarily a Muppet performer. The duck is still great. I'm, I'm pro duck. Oh yeah. I want you to know that if you read Cynthia Adler's professional bio, it mentions the duck and she talks about how the duck is part of Muppet history that Muppet fans still write and talk about today, which I would roll my eyes at, except we are doing that very thing. <laughs> we are doing that very thing. And also the uh, way back in the day, in the early days of the uh, Muppet fan website, toughpigs.com, when Denny Horn was reviewing every single Muppet show episode or thought he was going to, I don't know if he ever made it to the end, but all he had to say about this episode was, I don't want to talk about Bruce Forsyth. Let me just talk about the duck. Yeah. <laughs> the duck does this very cute thing when when she nods, but her head doesn't nod, just her beak nods. It's really cute. And I'm like, I don't know if that's like a mistake, but it's really cute. And so I don't care. Mm-hmm. So we should just talk for a second about who Cynthia Adler is, just because it's interesting. She is part of the Adler theatrical family. So that includes Stella Adler, the great acting teacher. It includes Bruce Adler, who was a uh, started the Yiddish theater who eventually worked in musical comedy as well. As Michal said, she did a lot of voiceover work. Most notably, she was the narrator of HBO's real sex. She was one of the voices of Chiquita banana. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's most noteworthy. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> real <you> sex. <laughs> I think, you, I think the real sex tidbit would only be more noteworthy if she did it in the voice of the duck. <laughs> well, here's the thing is that over time, there have been lots of different voices of Chiquita Banana. There's only been one, to my knowledge, narrator of real sex. Fair. Also, like, we are of the age where real sex probably looms larger in our 
adolescence than it might for other I, people. I didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't have HBO then. I've never seen it. But the Chiquita Banana was a, a large character in, in the same time as The Muppet Show. So. Well, there you go. Anyway, uh, and for the New Yorkers among us, she had a one-woman show called Downloaded and In Denial in uh, 2004. They got a, a bit of notice. Anyway, uh, that's Cynthia Adler. She is still around, I believe, still doing voiceover and maybe occasionally cabaret. Cynthia, if you're listening, please come talk to us about the duck. Yeah, tell us how you came to be on The Muppet Show and why you were only on two episodes. Meanwhile, in our A-plot, Fozzie is working on becoming impervious to heckling, and he asks Kermit for help. And Kermit, by the way, is doing a a beautiful job looking miffed at Fozzie um, for asking for his help in the middle of the show. But Fozzie asks Kermit to heckle him, which produces my favorite line of the week. I... Love it so much. Followed by Fozzie, just in response to this heckling, he hits Kermit with a rubber chicken, which is fantastic. I've seen cheeseburgers funnier than that. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, too subtle? Will you get out of here? <laughs> I found it shocking because I don't think we ever see Fozzie get violent. But it's it's funny violent. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's funny, chicken. but it... But it, it, but it felt like a piggy move, you know. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's, it surprised me, and and not in a great way. Uh, there's something about the way that Fozzie moves, and it's interesting. Like this is like we're because we talk the puppetry a lot, right? Like it's so different from anything that Piggy does, or even when like Waldorf hits Statler sometimes. Like it's such a, I can't the famously the famously visual medium of podcasting. I am gesturing right, but like the way that his arm moves with the chicken. It doesn't feel violent in the same way to me. It feels very like ineffective. It's some comedy shit, you know. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. You hear the impact of the chicken on Kermit. It sounds like it hurts. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that chicken probably weighs as much as Kermit. And yet, there is an act of violence in this episode that literally made me gasp. So <laughs> we will get there. More Muppet morsels. Frank Oz said that Kermit was the linchpin of the Muppet Show, just like Jim was the linchpin of the Muppet performers. Jim enjoyed being snarky through Kermit. That's the whole thing. And I was like, why? Well, I wanted to know, like, why did Jim enjoy being snarky through Kermit? Because because he wasn't snarky in real life. It just was one of the things where I was like, this is great. Oh, you're done. (laughs) I (laughs) wanted another sentence, but there wasn't one. Oh, well. Later in this backstage plot, uh, Fozzie learns that his act has been cut from this week's show. And he tries to faint on Hilda unsuccessfully twice. And I uh, just want to give Hilda another shout out because she does this adorable panicked entrance when Fozzie calls her and she does this terrific shocked look when Fozzie faints. And yeah, we're really going to miss Hilda when she's gone. It's almost like I sort of read it as like, because he calls her and she's like, and she's like, oh, no, what's wrong? Oh, you're fainting. I don't care. Kind yeah. of <laughs> and she runs in from on stage. I don't know what she was just doing no. on stage. If she was helping someone with a quick change, she might have been just off stage in the wings. To, That's true. To- yeah, you know, that's the thing that wardrobe. Does. We've seen people watch from the wings too. We've seen her roped into the chorus too. So <laughs> also right. that. Anyway, boy, am I? I I really want to get the best of those two old hecklers, Kermit. Well, I can guarantee you that Statler and Waldorf will not heckle you tonight. But but they always heckle me. Every show they heckle me. Well, why not tonight? Well, the show's running long, and your act's been cut. <laughs> Now, Hilda, Hilda. Yes, Don't Fuzzy. move. Just stay right there. But why? So you can break my fall when I faint. <laughs> ah. 
Cute duck. It's a duck again at the end. I like how the laugh track is sad for Fozzie. Yeah, that little awe. Speaking of cute, the, the way that Hilda like sort of like nestles into Bruce Forsyth in the introduction is so cute. <laughs> They're trying so hard to make this cute thing into a catchphrase, and the harder they push on it, the more I hate it. <laughs> well, it's also again that thing where she doesn't sound like any of the other Muppets, so it, it doesn't it just reads wrong. Right. And I don't mean that in any way as a criticism of, of Cynthia Adler. It's just it's just like a whole nother voice world that she's in. Uh, the more maybe overarching and more subtle subplot here is that Bruce Forsyth uh, is a whole variety show on his own and doesn't really need the Muppets' help. Uh, he sings and he dances and he tells jokes and he plays the piano and he hosts variety shows. He would have been a more interesting takeover than that uh, wind-up robot Kermit we saw a few weeks ago. <laughs> This is now the second second episode where we've seen a plot contrivance of, oh, sorry, regular Muppet. We need to cut your act because the guest star has something to do. And that becomes something of a of running and I would say maybe tired recurrence in the show, which maybe goes back to the question of does Kermit actually know what he's doing in terms of scheduling his own show? It's true. Though at least in this one, they explicitly say the show is running long, which just from a realism standpoint, I mean, that actually happens on yes, it does. live TV all the time. And I appreciate that a better reason was given for it than was given to Piggy. I'm mostly saying this so that when we get to the Carol Burnett episode three years from now in season <laughs> five, and it flips that on his head where her number gets cut because the Muppet stuff is running long. We can say, aha. <laughs> the tables have turned guest stars. Yeah. It, it makes sense. If the show is running long to cut an act, it wouldn't have made sense. Had the show not run long, we would have had two stand-up acts one right after the next. And that's, that's too many comedians. This is a show that gave us two electric mayhem numbers in one episode. <laughs> so I don't think two different stand-up comedians is, outside the realm of possibility for them. And you're never going to forgive them. I think there's something going on in the musical numbers in this episode that is very similar to the electric mayhem thing, but we'll, we'll get there too. Mm. Let's listen to at the dance. George, uh, would you like to come to my place for dinner tomorrow night? Maybe. What are you fixing? Well, you like duckling? I don't know. I never duckled. <laughs> Do you know what happened in 1776? No, oh, baby, but there's a great party in 1342. <laughs> I'm really into American history. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, Washington, Jefferson, Revere. Oh, you like Franklin? Well, I don't know. I've never frankled. <laughs> I think this is what they call a running gag. <laughs> They're really trying to make that Kipling joke happen. I love it. <laughs> I don't know why. It just gets me every time. So when I watched this the first time, I, as often happens with these puns, I did not understand the word that Mildred was saying. And I heard his buckling. So I Googled it. And I learned that hot smoked herring is called buckling served either hot or cold and that can be uh, your goal I for that out to adam and he's like what are you talking about is duckling and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> it is weird that they're talking about eating duck in this particular episode what you also didn't hear was that uh, miss kitty puppet in jim henson's voice asking if he could light up and his dance partner said sure and then uh, the lights go down and the wig that he's wearing 
lights up with Christmas lights. And that's pretty cool. Talking about the laugh track in this episode, the make-believe audience goes fucking nuts for that <laughs> yeah. gag. I don't know. The real one in my house did, too. <laughs> so we've got a talk spot. Oh, uh, do we? Yeah, a couple weeks ago, we had a Harvey Corman complaining that he felt out of place to Kermit during the talk spot, and they fixed that by turning him into a giant Muppet chicken. So that's fine. And uh, here we also fix it, kind of, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, well, it isn't like any other show on television. I mean, I'll, I'll buy the fact that you're a frog who can talk. Well, there's nothing strange about that. And I'll even buy the chicken uh, who shares my dressing room. No, but she's not for sale. I beg your pardon? No, that chicken's not for sale. Oh. I mean, I wouldn't mind selling her, but uh, her husband plays in the band. <laughs> no, you, you misunderstand me. You see, uh, I don't actually want to buy a chicken. Oh, I see. Mind you, I wouldn't mind uh, leasing a duck. <laughs> I can let you have a duck right here. I can uh, give you a good rental deal on this duck. Oh, it's not a bad-looking duck. Oh, it's a great little duck. Yeah. I mean, it was last known by a little old lady who only used it as a decoy during the hunting season. Really? <laughs> well, how much to rent this duck for a month? He's going to fuck that duck, you guys. <laughs> he looks at the camera and, like, does a eyebrow waggle thing, too. I made a gif of it. It'll be in the show notes. How much to lease a duck? Here's the thing. If the duck was used as a decoy, that implies that they know that this duck is, is a not a real duck, right? Or that there's some distinction between a Muppet duck and a actual Well, duck or just the duck hunt. was only used as bait for other ducks. The duck is a virgin. I guess oh you wouldn't use a live, <laughs> live duck as a decoy. That's not what a decoy is. It's sure. Not. Unless it plays dead and looks like a stuffed duck. So it's playing the role of a decoy, but as an actual duck. It's an acting role. Yeah. But just because <laughs> my mind had already gone to the dirty place, then when, when Kermit was like only used as, like, it didn't matter what what he said next. I was like, right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this no. it's, all, it's all awful. After I mean, also in the, in the chronology of the episode, this happens after his flirtatious dance with the bird, right? Yes. Yeah, and after we've met the duck backstage, like the duck is fully a character to us already. Right. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk more about, uh, Bruce and birds when we get to the song section. <laughs> well, to me, there's nothing funny about chickens. <laughs> <laughs> but later he will sing a romantic song with Miss Piggy, but here he's exchanging various animals, including a, a naked pig puppet for the rental of this duck and Miss Piggy gets offended um, and they get into a bit of fisticuffs or maybe it's snout sticuffs. <laughs> For one lousy duck, this is an outrage to all pork <laughs> I was, uh, I really missed it, Miss Piggy. I, I, I was only joking. I wasn't having a go at you. Yeah, well, have a go at this. That Miss Piggy takes umbrage at the slightest annoyance. Oh, I usually take aspirin. Maybe I'll try some umbrage. Taking umbrage is the appropriate reaction because what Bruce Forsyth did was after Miss Piggy hit him, which is a, at this point a normal thing to do if you're a guest star on The Muppet Show, maybe you should be expecting to get punched by Miss Piggy or karate chopped by Miss Piggy. But then he sticks his fingers into her snout. I That's a... Hmm. Yeah, sticks his fingers into her snout, like slams it down with his other hand. 
and it makes this like thwomp noise. And oh my God, I, I mean, I, I grasp my face every time I see it. <laughs> well, there's a gift of that in the show too, if you want to watch it again and again. If you want to watch him break Miss Piggy's nose over and over again. <laughs> Eesh. I don't know what else to say about that. Should we talk about Vets Hospital? Let's, let's do it. <laughs> let's move on. Right. It's much yeah. less upsetting. This is also a little bit out of order, but we're going to have a smooth blend and a nice segue into the next segment. Uh, so we've got the the duck here as a patient, or is it a chicken? Well, what have we here? Another sick chicken? I'm not a chicken. I'm a duck. Shall we prepare for surgery on the chicken? Duck! Oh! <laughs> And every time she yells duck, they all do this adorable little yelp and kind of jump up a couple inches into the air so that Rolf's ears fly up and then they all duck behind the operating table and it happens several times and it is equally delightful every time. We were saying earlier that uh, if you watch the duck, you can tell that Cynthia Adler is not a veteran Muppet performer, but you will be pleased to note that uh, the duck absolutely nails her big punchline. Tune in next week when you will hear Dr. Bob say to his patient... Well, what kind of doctor do you think I am? Quack. I should know better than to ask a chicken. Perfect. I do love that it's the actual punchline that she said in the first scene (laughs) that she was practicing. Yeah, she's been working on it. And she got it. Okay, so Fozzie's act uh, has been cut because we've already got a guy who tells jokes. It's our guest star, Mr. Bruce Forsyth, who's telling some jokes about... American and British television and all of it is very of its time and it's fine. He does a joke about Kojak, talks about people sticking their fingers in his nose because they want to use his head as a bowling ball. And I don't know what Bruce Forsyth's deal is with ducks <laughs> or with people sticking sticking fingers in people's noses. It's a lot. Good, good stuff. Yeah, I've heard better. I'm sure you have, sir. You know, in fact, at your age, you're lucky you can hear it all. <laughs> only kidding, only kidding. You've probably got a great sense of humor. In fact, I know you have. I saw your wife outside. <laughs> oh, oh, he's burying me. He's burying me. Fozzie, uh, he, he doesn't say hoo-ha, but in my mind and my heart, he does. He just kind of <laughs> wanders on stage. And uh, Bruce Forsyth just kindly interrupts his own act to give Fozzie some tips on dealing with hecklers. And it takes a little work before Fozzie gets there, but then he gets there. We surrender! We surrender! No more! No more! You did it, Fozzie! Ah, I did it! Bruce! I did it! Oh, I did it! I did it! Oh, 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 Bruce! Oh, this is the happiest moment of my life! Oh, just, just learning from a pro like you, working side by side with one of the great... You even learned how to cue the big musical finish to the comedy spot! You did? Yeah? Yeah! All right! Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. Maybe we're ragged and blinded, but we travel along, singing a song. Thank you, Mr. Forsyth. It's my pleasure, Mr. Bear. Hey, we travel along, singing a song. Side by side. Yes, Keep the ears, keep the ears. It's very cute. Oh, nice segue. <laughs> good blend. Mm. So for maximum smooth and good blend segueness, let's talk about side by side first. 
Side by Side is a song from 1927 written by a, a guy named Harry M. Woods, and it is a standard. Harry Woods uh, was a songwriter who also wrote When the Red Red Robin Comes Bob Bob Bobbing Along, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and Try a Little Tenderness. And I, I found a very funny thing about him in a book called America's Songs, The Stories Behind the Songs of Broadway, Hollywood, and Tin Pan Alley by Philip Furia and Michael Lasser. They said, even though Harry Woods was born without fingers on his left hand, his mother encouraged him to study piano. After Harvard, he was a gentleman farmer until he began writing songs, but he did not write full-time until the success of When the Red Red Robin Comes Bob Bob Bobbin Along in 1926. In addition to his hits, Woods was known for his drinking and his violent temper. He once got into a barroom brawl that was so bad somebody called the police. They found Woods sitting astride his adversary, clutching him by the throat with his good hand and pounding the man's head with his stump. A woman entering the bar was appalled by what she saw. Who is that horrible man, she asked. One of Woods' drinking pals piped up, that's Harry Woods. He wrote Try a little tenderness. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, this is not the first Muppet iteration of Side by Side. Ralph and uh, Jimmy Dean did it on the Jimmy Dean show in 1963. Should we talk about the jacket? Let's talk about the jacket. I think we have some feelings about the jacket. It's amazing. What else is there to say? <laughs> so yeah, Bruce, Bruce Forsyth is wearing an amazing jacket in this entire sequence. It's like a velvet patchwork situation, but it's like, you know, real flary and fitted and very 70s. And oh my gosh, I want it. <laughs> well, but you want is like the whole ensemble. Yeah, that's true. Because he's got like the like Robin's Egg Blue, like uh, uh, frilly tuxedo shirt underneath. It's it. like a, Yeah, it's yeah. like a pirate shirt and also a medallion just for good measure. It's also the only outfit of his in this episode that really jumped out at me compared to say like the Lena Horn episode where we had something to say about every single piece of clothing she wore uh, or Charles Aznavour. So it's not just about how we're trained to look at women's clothing. I don't know that I could tell you a single other thing he wore in this episode, but Bruce's crushed velvet blue patchwork jacket is seared in my brain. Hmm. The only other observation I made about his wardrobe was in one of the later numbers, he's wearing a suit that contrasts red and pink, which is not a combination that you see very often. So our actual uh, first number in the episode is a performance by the Snurfs. The Snurfs? Before I get into the history of the song, how would you guys describe the Snurfs? Hmm. They're Muppet monsters with trumpets for noses and extendable necks. So they're when they are compact, they look like they're basically just feet with a face, but then their necks can extend so they end up being all neck with a little face on the top and little feet at the bottom. And they're performed in front of a, a black screen or by a performers all in black. I didn't know whether they were performed from underneath, like just with a hand going straight up until they jumped up in the air and their feet did a little windmilling thing. (laughs) This was a useful Muppet morsel there. They're controlled by three rods, two in the feet and one on the head. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the puppeteers are behind them. An earlier version had uh, the feet were a glove. Um, And we'll have a clip in the show notes of their appearance on Sesame Street where you, you can actually really see the difference when it's a, when it's a glove. And and you can also kind of see, you know, 
how it positions the puppeteer differently when when they have to have their whole hand in the feet versus when it's a rod and they can be further back. It's a it's a neat trick because <laughs> you really can't see the people at all. So you, you mentioned an earlier version. Uh, this is actually the second iteration of this to appear on TV. The first one was in a special called Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass in 1974, featuring, you guessed it, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. <laughs> and this uh, piece of music that's used now is more or less the, the Herb Alpert and Tijuana Brass version of the song, just with a little more added comic honking. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, the original arrangement is on an album called, uh, sounds like from 1967. The, the song dates back to 1926. It's a song called in a little Spanish town. I only w- really want to talk about the composer since we, we don't hear the lyrics, uh, a woman named Mabel Wayne. There are so few, uh, Tin Pan Alley women composers. So I was excited to learn about her. She was born in 1890, died in 1978. And it's noted as one of the first women composers to publish a hit song. And her other songs include Ramona and It Happened in Monterey. And, uh, you know, the song was a hit in various iterations over the years. There's a jazzy and kind of funny version sung by Virginia O'Brien in the 1943 MGM movie Thousands Cheer, which is basically like a cinematic USO show. And um, she's backed up by Gloria David and June Allison. And at one point, the way they popped up reminded me of Menomina. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Bing Crosby had a hit with it in 1955. Um, there's a Buster Keaton bit in a short called Pest of the West where he k- keeps trying to play it outside of a window and stuff falls in his head. But my favorite bit of Muppet related trivia uh, related to this song actually involves Herb Alpert. In addition to being the only person to score a number one hit both as a vocalist and as an instrumentalist, Herb Alpert is one of the co-founders of the very successful A&M Records label, which existed from 1962 until it was acquired by Polygram in 1989. And while it was in existence, A&M Records had a headquarters and studios on the what was originally the Charlie Chaplin Studios lot. Which, oh. uh, so, so, oh, but, but here's the thing. So, so A&M was located there from 1966 to 1999, at which point the, uh, A&M lot previously, the Charlie Chaplin lot became the Jim Henson company lot. Da, 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 da. And if you drive by it today, you can still see as a tribute to the history of that lot. There's a statue of Kermit dressed like Charlie Chaplin over the main yep. gate. That's very cool. Yeah, I do like how with numbers like this, even if, you know, it's all silent, none of the characters have any lines, but there are definitely characters and stories and relationships. And they're they're building this whole story and establishing who these people are to each other without having them say anything. And it's kind of like watching a ballet in that way, just fuzzier and with, with puppets. <laughs> And I also love the way that the story really builds. It gives shape to this number in a way that isn't necessarily built into the song itself. So we start with like the one snurf and his relationship with the second snurf or their relationship. We don't know the gender of the snurfs. And then there's sort of the snurf community that that is ganging up against our main snurf who gets more and more frustrated. And then there's that point where the camera pulls back and reveals the second level, which I, I let a little gasp. I just thought that was so cool. So it's really, it's it's one of these sort of perfect examples of, of a puppetry for puppetry's sake kind of numbers that I find to be hit or miss with the Muppets, but this one to me hit. Yeah, and the simplicity of it too, right? That it's 
you know, that it is just these, the puppeteers are in black on a black background and it's that there is, I mean, there is no second level, right? It's the same performers and they, they do a split screen. Um, so that, you know, they're using, they're using a camera trick, but a really basic one. Um, I really love it. And I, I love if you, in the show notes, you can see the, the Sesame street iteration, which is not this number. It's the puppets are used in a different way and the, um, Herb Alpert one. And then this one, and you can actually, you can see the puppets evolve too. They don't have the horn noses on Sesame street. Um, and, and then, you know, the gloves to the rods and it's, it's kind of neat to track that also because they get more expressive as they change as well. It's also kind of neat that the Snurfs were almost part of the first Muppet merchandising produced. You may remember we spoke about many episodes ago, uh, a set of puppets that the ideal company made that was, uh, had a really sort of disturbing commercial that Adam loves and hates. I don't hate, oh, wait, it, there's no hate. I love that commercial with oh, all no. my heart. <laughs> Uh, and it's and in the commercial, it's it's Kermit, Rolf, and a Snurf. They ended up not making the Snurf, but he is or they are immortalized in the commercial. So we'll reshare the commercial because so good. Adam apparently wholeheartedly loves it. I mean, it's disturbing. It's violent, and I love it. <laughs> I also wondered if the Snurfs were the progenitors of the Honkers from Sesame street. Cause I looked it up and the honkers apparently did not debut on Sesame street until 1980. Huh. So well after this, but they are designed by totally different Muppet designers. So it is possible that they were inspired, but uh, there's not a direct connection that I can find. So our next number is performed by our all around magical entertainer, song and dance man, Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> She'll just appear. We'll take this big bird. I must have taken those pills. It'll go away in a minute. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's a real one. <laughs> I hope it's not a female. All you can think of. Yikes. About. <laughs> I- I don't get why does he not want it to be a female? Because he doesn't yeah. want it to rape him. But isn't it already flirting with him? So is he hoping it's a male? I don't know. I was I was confused too until later when when it gets more aggressive and he's like, "Oh, it is a female." And then I decided that that's what was happening was he was concerned for his so, sexual safety, I guess. I don't so know. We, sh- we should probably explain what's happening. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. Can you? Is it possible? Uh, sort There's of. a bird on stage with him. A very, a- very large bird. Yeah. It's called the Gawky Bird. That is its official Muppet name. And it's it's. this is also uh, against uh, a black stage. And the first time I watched, I wrote down, oh, my God, I'm in chroma key hell. Because just... <laughs> As much as I enjoyed the snurfs, you know, it, it's the. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's and a he's lot. In, he's in white in this, Bruce is. And so yeah. he's really floating. And there's this neon green gazebo that gave me like Main Street Electrical Parade vibes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're in a dark ride. I'm okay with it. This may look different depending on what screen you watch on because for me, and I watched this episode twice but i think once i watched it on my computer and once on my ipad i felt like i could see very clearly the puppeteers working the birds so it did not trip me oh interesting because i watched on the dvd on my tv and then on disney plus on my computer and i couldn't so i had a question 
for you guys, if you know, but also for our listeners, though, if you could see, if you could see the puppeteer, that actually maybe answers my question. So, um, this is, it is not actually chroma key. As far as I know, this is just, um, the puppeteer is wearing black on a black background. And in my experience with this live, um, many, many years ago, I worked on a show on Broadway that, that used this effect and, um, and the tech for this, these scenes were just interminable. And much more recently, the seminal Broadway show ghost, the musical, um, (laughs) uh, it used some, some similar effect. You actually like, you, you can't really light it from the front, right? You have to kind of make a curtain of light from the sides and, and the top and maybe the bottom that the, that the puppets are in and the puppeteers stand behind. So that they are not in the light and it's very tricky to get right so that you can't see the puppeteers. And what I really noticed about both the snurfs, but, but especially this was how bright it seemed. And I know that TV lighting is not the same as stage lighting. Um, but then especially you do an HD transfer and put it on a big TV. I was struck by how invisible the puppeteers. Are. I could see the rod between the head and the body very clearly, but I couldn't see the human really at all. And so I was curious if anybody out there knows how they achieve that. I mean, now it would be green screen right now. You'd put the puppeteer in a green suit and just make him disappear with a computer. But I was distracted by that, which maybe was helpful because of the way I didn't really enjoy the number. (laughs) So speaking of the number, we should probably talk about the song itself. Um, We probably should. uh, Though it's, it's from a pretty famous source, so we don't have to say too much. Uh, It's uh, all I need is the girl, which is a song from the musical gypsy music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim from 1959. It has been uh, recorded by noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra, (laughs) um, an album called Francis a and Edward K. Uh, recorded with Duke Ellington and his band. And interestingly on that album, this track follows Sonny hmm. from a few episodes ago. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, also been recorded by future Muppet show guest star, Carol Burnett. And there are, that's our third Carol Burnett reference of the episode. Oh, man. Br- bring them on. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, nothing but love for my president. Um, and <laughs> the, yeah. And, the, and there are alternate uh, gender swappable lyrics for it. It's not the same when it's not sung by a twink. It's also not the same when he sings the entire song. flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I found this interminable up to the point when the, the gawky bird got with the program and started dancing with him. And then I found it charming. It's true. And, and I mean, we should talk, we, we talked about the lighting. We should talk about the actual puppetry. The, I, I would have sworn that the birds were two puppeteers, but um, the Muppet Morsels told me that they are not. It's one performer with his feet on, uh, attached to the bird's feet and then a very long rod attached to the head. Um, and that's just impressive. I mean, I'm sure the, the bird is quite light, but it still seems very unwieldy. And and I mean and gawky, hence, um, yeah, yeah, hence the name. But it's still pretty cool. The peckiness of the the gawky bird reminds me of the the emu and the Liberty Mutual commercials that seem to be on <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, on every device and every service. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Apparently, this number was originally created for the live Muppet musical review that was created for Lincoln Center that never actually happened, which is the same show that the gazelle number from the juliet prowse episode was created for and it was notable to me that this number for all of its shortcomings transferred to television much more successfully than the juliet prowse number did because now what we are 12 13 episodes in they seem to have a better sense of how did you dance for the screen they let the camera move they're not boxed in by the frame of the television in the way that they were with the juliet prowse gazelle number so just on 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 that technical level it felt like 
we've really seen, you know, not even halfway through the season that they've been learning by doing and it's it's benefiting and and the deeper into this the better the episodes are getting because of that all right shall we onward i don't want to i know what's next (laughs) (laughs) hey adam your friends are here Many, many years ago when I was 23, I was married to a widder who was pretty as could be. This widder had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her and soon they two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. For my daughter was my mother cause she was my father's wife. To complicate the matter even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad. And so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if it was my uncle, then that also made him brother of the widder's grown-up daughter, who of course was my stepmother. Oh, I'm my old grandpa. I'm my old grandpa. It's not funny, I know, but it really is so. Oh, I'm my old grandpa. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> and I just before before we get into it, they say "sing it, pa," and Jim Henson calls it out, and none of the Muppets are moving their mouth at that point. So I don't know who's whose <laughs> pa is being told to sing. Somebody off screen. <laughs> the real paws, the friends we made along the way, <laughs> um. and the real grandpa is somewhere on this diagram. <laughs> Yes, so this is I'm My Own Grandpa, which is a novelty song, novelty country song written by uh, Dwight Latham and Mo Jaffe. Uh, This is our second Mo Jaffe song. The first one was I Never Harmed an Onion in the Ruth Buzzy episode. So this was originally performed by a country uh, comedy duo named Lonzo and Oscar in 1947. And uh, Wikipedia describes this in a very funny way. It says it's about a man who threw an unlikely but legal combination of marriages... (laughs) (laughs) stepfather to his own stepmother that is tacitly dropping the step modifiers he becomes his own grandfather well said wikipedia yeah and uh interestingly uh lonzo and oscar who originated the song were staples of the grand Ole opry and uh sort of changed personnel over the years uh the same oscar stuck around but there was a revolving door of lonzo's and the last lonzo before Oscar died uh, was a guy named Billy Henson. And I couldn't ascertain if he was any relation, but uh, (laughs) I'd already done enough thinking about uh, the strange ways in which people can be related just by listening to the song. So I didn't dig too deep. (laughs) And uh, according to a very informative and amusing piece from genealogy magazine in 2007, this very nearly happened to Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones because in in <laughs> 1989 uh he uh at the age of 52 wed a, an 18 year old named Mandy Smith oh, and they divorced after uh about 2 years um but then his 31 year old son became engaged to the wife's 49 year old mother <laughs> so had everyone either stayed married and or gotten married then uh Bill Wyman might have been his own grandpa Missed opportunity. <sighs> we've we've discussed Skiffle and the dinkadoo of it all, but I I just I'm fascinated that the UK spot is so often the jug band, and I just wonder how this sort of thing played to UK audiences. I mean, this was also around the time this was a little bit before Monty Python 
and faulty towers were really big in the US. Although so much of um, Bruce Forsyth's stand-up, it is actually about the sort of TV cultural exchange that was happening at this time. But I don't know. It's just such a specific bit of Americana to be exporting <laughs> in this way. And, and and only, like, if it were if it were in both versions, I wouldn't question it. But that is that this is only for the UK, I find very, very suspect. The only other thing I have to say about it is that this was the only piece of this episode that I had uh, any previous experience with it was on one of the the vhs compilations and i had (laughs) as a child rented it and uh, recorded all of the music onto a tape that i listened to a lot so i'm very very familiar with it so we have a wayne and wanda bit i think that i shall never see a poem lovely as a tree So I'm actually going to defer to Michal here, who has a lot of interesting things to say about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Trees was a poem, is a poem. Uh, It is still memorized by uh, countless children today. It was written in 1913 by Alfred Joyce Kilmer with music composed by Oscar Rasbach in 1922. And it's been recorded by numerous artists, uh, including Nelson Eddy and Perry Como and Paul Robeson. It was also included in the 1948 Walt Disney Anthology feature, Melody Time. I would be remiss if I did not pay at least a brief homage to Sergeant Alfred Joyce Kilmer, uh, who wrote the poem Trees, and it was also the unofficial mascot of my college literary debating society, the Philolexian Society, uh, which celebrates him every year with the annual Alfred Joyce Kilmer Memorial Bad Poetry Contest, which uh, yours truly has only won once with the best worst poem of the evening, but I've been runner up several times with the second best worst poem of the evening. Kilmer's work has uh, sometimes been criticized as conservative or sentimental or treacly or overly devotional. He once wrote an ode to a delicatessen. All that is about the right speed for Wayne and Wanda. Um, There are numerous Joyce Kilmer namesakes all around the country uh, schools and parks and what have you, but I am I am honor bound to report that the Joyce Kilmer Memorial Rest Stop and Service Area is at Exit Eight on the New Jersey Turnpike. Does it have a delicatessen in it? I don't think so. I think it's just a rest <laughs> stop opportunity. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it does have trees. I'm pretty sure. Good stuff. Yeah, that's Joyce Kilmer. This number is on the Muppet Show album, but with a different Sam the Eagle frame, oh. which uh, we've mentioned. Because we heard that frame a number of episodes ago, so just closing the loop on that. Proving your conspiracy theory. That it's all modular furniture. Yeah. So our our last number of the evening is a duet between Bruce and uh, Miss Piggy. Small ones, huh? Yes, that's singing the trees. I don't want that big one back. Someone to bless me. Whenever I sneeze, bless you, Piggy. Let there be cuckoos, a lark and a dove. But most of all, please let there be love. Come in, boys. (laughs) Real Roxy Heart energy from Piggy on that line. 
kind of surprised the Westers haven't actually cast her yet. That was my favorite moment of the episode when when she calls for her boys, and then a chorus line of tuxedoed pigs comes out behind the piano. It was just and perfect. one in a turtleneck and a trench coat. I <laughs> because I started I writing down. That too. <laughs> <laughs> They're all he just I don't know. They, the costume department just forgot about him. So uh, th- the song is Let There Be Love, uh, music by Lionel Rand, lyrics by Ian Grant, published in 1940. I couldn't find much of anything about either of them, sadly. But um, but this song has been recorded by conservatively 11 billion people, most notably uh, Nat King Cole. It was a hit single in the UK uh, for 14 weeks and uh, peaked at number 11. And it's worth mentioning that uh, Bruce Forsyth is playing the piano in this number. Uh, so complete and utter ham and show off. Uh, so he, he's, a, he's a good match for Miss Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> this is Piggy's first musical number in which she is the main singer along with the guest star. Um, and Frank Oz said that Piggy is his most difficult character to perform, not just physically, but because he has to dig deep to find that feminine part of himself, to which I would say you could have always cast a woman, but... He's he's very good in this number, so we'll give it to him. <laughs> yeah, it's a delight. This was the number that led me to think of the conspiracy theory that perhaps Bruce Forsyth didn't just replace Fozzie, but one by one replaced all the Muppets because this is a Rolf number. This should be Rolf singing with Piggy. Uh, it's fine that it's not. Bruce Forsyth does a lovely job. I do hope that now that there is a full-size piano on set that Rolf maybe gets to use it. <laughs> In the future, yeah. there's the the shot starts with like a close up on the Steinway and Sons branding on the piano before it pulls back to show the rest of them. So I wonder if there was a little deal mm. cut. The whole framing, like the angle, is is unusual for the Muppet Show. It's something we haven't seen yet, anyway. And you know, Piggy's sitting on a stool and her legs are crossed, and you can see her little high heeled foot tapping. I mean, it's it's great, and it's it's not a thing we've seen yet. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I'm not sure if this was necessarily one of Bruce's signature numbers. I can't tell if he ever did it prior to being on the Muppet show, but he did it a number of times since including he recorded on his final album in 2011, which was called these are my favorites. He made a music video of it and he did it in a couple of television appearances around that time as well. So that may whether he brought it to the Muppet Show or they brought it to him, it, it became uh, part of his, you know, ongoing persona. So, to close things off with our ongoing conspiracy theories, last week, Christy, you noticed uh, that Frank Oz had a credit for special Muppet material, and we didn't know what that meant. So, I was looking this week, and this week, uh, Frank Oz and Mike Frith ha- are credited as Muppet creative consultants, but not special Muppet material. I don't know what any of that means, but uh, I thought I would mention it since we mentioned it last week. Any Michael Frith fans out there uh, might want to check out the Tough Pigs podcast, Moving Right Along, where they have an interview with Michael Frith about the origins of the Muppet babies that we see in the Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, And I think we also have our first real yay. Special thanks to our special guest star, Mr. Bruce Forsyth! It's particularly notable because in the opening, when he introduces Bruce Forsyth, there's no yay, no cheer, not even a smile. It's like Bruce really won him over. I mean, that's definitely a yay compared to whatever that thing last week was. (laughs) Yes. Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's also this really strange moment in the closing where, um, you know, everything's wrapping up the credits are starting to roll and Kermit, you know, does his little arm wavy thing. And like Bruce Forsyth makes fun of him <laughs> and waves his arms. And then Kermit gets self-conscious. <laughs> really cute. And it feels improvised on, on Jim Henson's part. And it's, it's really cute and it's a really great bit of puppetry. And I made a gif of it and you should go look at it. Um, but it's also like a little mean on Bruce Forsyth's part if it is improvised. But it's also one of those things where like I just I love how much the Muppet performers um it, if I'm assuming that it that it was improv. Like I love how much they're paying attention and it, it how much it makes the Muppets feel alive. Like you just really believe that Kermit himself has seen this thing happen and is reacting to it. And it made me happy, but also a little sad. <laughs> I don't think he was making fun of Kermit. I think he was emulating Kermit. True, but the result is to make Kermit like sort of stop waving his arms and look at his arms like, oh, do, do I do that? Do I look weird? <laughs> so either way, it made Kermit feel bad, and I don't like that. I think if, if you watch any of the various like talk show appearances where Jim sort of does more demonstration-y stuff, it, it, it becomes clear how... like. Uh, quick and reactive he was with the Muppets. Like we mentioned the, the 1974 what's my line appearance uh, last week. And uh, it's, uh, it's great because at the end of the, the episode, you see Jim and Kermit interacting with the panel uh, just off the cuff. <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, I, when, when being Elmo came out, um, I went to a screening at the museum television radio and they did a panel afterwards. Um, and there was this moment where, um, Kevin Clash broke and couldn't stop laughing. And and Elmo turned and looked at him <laughs> as if to say, Are you gonna be okay? <laughs> and like you you can see his arm, right? Like you you're an adult in a room with people and you understand that Elmo is a puppet on the arm of Kevin Clash. And it looked so one hundred percent like Elmo was his own person. <laughs> under his own control um so yeah i mean they were all they were all really adept at it um but it was fun to watch i actually have a video of that i could i can put in the show notes now i've seen everything good can we leave thanks for listening to this episode of muppeturgy join us next week for our discussion of the sandy duncan episode where we will be joined by david bukema you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Bryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Lennon. Again, I'm just going to, I don't know why I was so taken with the, the, the DVD this, this episode, but Dave Goals did not like performing two puppets at once and at the dance because his nose would always itch. I feel like that would be a problem all the time. <laughs> With performing just one puppet, you mean? Well, yeah, certainly like a, a, hand, a live hand puppet. Yeah. I mean, when Dave Gold is performing Gonzo, he can just drop the arm rods and scratch his nose. Right. But I guess I can't think of Dave Gold's characters who have live hands, but guess, some well, of them must. Bunsen was live hands, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so can't scratch so his nose. Now I'm going to watch Bunsen like scratching his crotch, which means that Dave Gold is actually <laughs> scratching his nose. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that means. Go Google it. <laughs> 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 <sighs>